This is an ABC podcast. Last year, the ABC's China correspondent Bill Bertels was at his apartment in Beijing having a farewell party. So I was packing, I had a couple of friends over to help pack, and then at midnight, the cops knock on the door, seven state security police. His friends were shocked. It felt serious. And of course they were all yelling and screaming and carrying on when they saw seven cops at the door. The whole thing just felt surreal by that point. Bill, of course, already knew something was up. A few days earlier, he'd broken a story for the ABC about a news presenter named Chung Lai. Many wonder if she's caught up in the middle of a diplomatic spat as an Australian working at Chinese government media. Two weeks earlier, she'd disappeared. Turns out she'd been detained by police. I get a call from headquarters here, ABC, one of my managers, to say, we've just had a call from DFAT. They're telling, telling us you need to immediately evacuate China for your own safety. The ABC told Bill to get out of China. Now. For the first couple of days, I was very reluctant to leave. I said to the diplomats, look, what's going on? You reckon I'm in danger? Give us some details. He did what he was told and booked the flight. But the night before he was set to leave came that knock at the door. And then I thought, gee, I'm about to be detained. He wasn't detained. He wasn't taken away. But the cops said he's not allowed to leave China. That spiralled into the embassy saying, stay on the grounds, don't leave. We're going to negotiate this at a very high level with the Chinese. Bill waited, and finally he was told that if he came in to talk to officials about the Chung Lai case, he would be allowed to leave the country. So they talked. Uh, it all felt like a bit of a performance to me. It didn't seem like a real attempt to gather evidence. After four days, Bill boarded a plane and flew home to Sydney. You know, the ambassador accompanied me to the airport. <laughs> I mean, it was a very unusual circumstance. We had chaperones and stuff, but I just felt deeply disappointed. I'll be honest, I did not want to leave China. I was enjoying my job. China was a huge story. He wasn't the only one who had to go. Every single journalist from an Australian media outlet has now been effectively forced out of China. These days, China won't even answer our calls. A lot of our trade has been blocked too. If we lose our trading relationship with China, and that means big consequences for people's jobs, employment and living standards. We all need to understand what's going on with China. They are the success story of the last 50 years. They've pulled hundreds of millions of people out of poverty using spectacular economic growth, fuelled by their unique hybrid of communism and capitalism. And for the rest of your life, you're likely to be living in a world where China increasingly calls the shots. So, I'm Matt Bevan, and this is China If You're Listening. It's a podcast about how Australia's vital relationship with China came to the verge of complete collapse. And while we've been looking at the circus happening in the United States, incredible things have been unfolding in China. People start disappearing and people lock it up for no reason. Chinese tech firms ultimately have to do what the Chinese government asks of them in order to survive. One of more than 100 towns being built for a million people who will lose their homes. 
the reality is that a conflict over Taiwan could easily turn into a nuclear war. We've spent so much time watching America that we've missed the biggest and most interesting story of the century. Make China great again. To make China great again. To make China great again. This podcast used to be about this guy. Russia, not bad, not bad at all. And this guy. The American dream is dead. Today, a man unlike either of them. Not driven to extremes by his desperation for power, but a man almost perfectly suited to controlling his country at a crucial moment. A man who, from a terrible and terrifying upbringing, rose to become the most powerful leader of China since Chairman Mao. His name is Xi Jinping. He sees himself as a man of destiny. Saw himself very much as, quote, the man of destiny. So, on today's episode, who is President Xi? And is he the reason Australia's relationship with China is collapsing? Now imagine for a moment you're standing on a train station platform in Beijing. It's 1969. There's a steam train pulling up to the platform and a line of children are waiting to board. The country is still very poor. Most of the population are farmers. Chairman Mao Zedong, leader of China, is sending these children far away from their families to Yan'an in Shanxi province to work with the farmers. Everyone else on the train who was leaving Beijing to go to the countryside were crying. Every child except one. A 15-year-old boy named Xi Jinping. On the whole special train, there was no one who was not crying except for me who was laughing. At the time, my family standing outside the car all said, how could you be laughing? I said if I was staying, I would be crying. If I did not go, I don't even know if I would live or die here. He was being sent to work in the countryside. And yet he was happy to be leaving Beijing, leaving his family, leaving his childhood far behind. And it was all because of his dad. To understand Xi Jinping, who he is and how he became the leader he is today, we have to understand that Xi, myth, the story he tells about himself to explain where he's come from. It's a myth that begins before he was even born, with his father, Xi Zhongshun, who joined the communist revolution as a child. Xi Zhongshun was a revolutionary from Shanxi province uh, in the northwest. This is Joseph Terigian. He's a China expert at the American University and is writing a biography of Xi's dad. And in fact, his first revolutionary act was an attempt to poison a teacher that went wrong, which uh, forced him into a jail. Uh, and it was actually, in fact, in that jail uh, that he joined the Chinese Communist Party Youth League. Xi Zhongshun was part of that founding generation of hardcore, dedicated revolutionaries, totally devoted to the leader of the movement, Mao Zedong. And attempting to poison his teacher was only the start. As a teenager, he executed landlords and saw his comrades die beside him on the battlefields of the Chinese Civil War. Xi Zhongshun experienced several um, occasions during which he almost died. One of the stories 
that um, Xu Zhongshun describes was an occasion when he was uh, almost eaten by a leopard. She had fled from enemies, gone into a forest. He couldn't fire his gun because otherwise the people chasing him would find him. So Xu Zhongshun, according to the story, uh, faced the leopard for a prolonged period of time from about 10 steps away from each other. He was so frightened that his hair stood on end and sweat soaked his clothes. Later, when he had kids, he told them endless stories about his time in the revolution. And you know how dads can be weird about not wasting things around the house? Well, Xi Zhongshun was extremely that. Xi Jinping said that when he was young, he was most afraid of his father coming home late at night and uh, waking him up from a dream to take a bath. Uh, He thought the water he used for his own bath after coming home was still very clean and did not want to waste it. Uh, So he would wake up Xi Jinping and his younger brother Xi Yunping and and force them uh, into the water for a dip and a bit of cleaning. It was kind of weird how obsessed with thriftiness he was because not only was Xi Zhongshun a famous war hero, he also had a pretty well-paying job. Chairman Mao had made him chief of the propaganda department and then vice premier of China. But it wasn't to last. Xi Zhongshun spent over a decade in Mao's inner sanctum until one day he pissed off Mao by doing something pretty innocuous and became one of the first to be purged. Xi Zhongshun was removed from his position of vice premier uh, and he was sent to a sort of confinement uh, in the party school uh, where he was told to write um, self-criticisms, reflect on what he had done wrong uh, and engage in uh, manual labor to to reform himself. After four years of hard labor, he was given a small reprieve, a job as a deputy manager of a tractor factory. Remember, this man was previously one of the most powerful people in China. Xi Jinping had gone from being the child of a high-level government official to being completely shunned by Chinese society. But much, much worse was coming. For him, his family, and all of China. See, the purge of Xi Zhongshun was just a test run for Mao. The great supreme commander, Chairman Mao, issued a world-shaking call to us. You should pay attention to state affairs and carry the great proletarian cultural revolution through to the end. This is a propaganda film put out by Mao, announcing with jaunty music the beginning of a uniquely terrifying period of Chinese history. The red torrents of the great proletarian cultural revolution are sweeping the country and shaking the whole world. Mao, in his 70s at the time, had become weakened and paranoid about losing power. So he declared that every level of the government he led had been infiltrated by capitalist spies. He unleashed a wave of terror with a simple instruction. Chairman Mao says, it's right to rebel. It's right to rebel. He called on the youth of China to rebel against the people who tried to control them, their teachers, the police, the landlords, the government, and they did. Children spied on their parents. People were humiliated in the streets. You know how people call things Orwellian when they're actually not? What was happening in China was actually straight out of a George Orwell book. Professor Fong Chong-Yi from the University of Technology in Sydney was a child during the Cultural Revolution. I was at primary school during that period of time. At the school, there were uh, struggle sessions. 
At his school, there were struggle sessions. Just a warning here, the next part of the story is quite violent. If you want to dodge that, you can skip forward two minutes. Now, a struggle session is something that's hard to imagine, but basically people were punished in front of crowds. They would come in different forms, so sometimes it would be uh, a small group, sometimes it would be an entire stadium. Either they were humiliated, forced to confess crimes they didn't commit, screamed at, or at Feng Chong Yi's primary school... Many of them are beaten to death. ...beaten to death. It wasn't confined to struggle sessions, though. Fong's aunt and cousins were visited one night by, well, essentially by Mao's child soldiers. One of my aunt were, were beaten to death during the night. Fong was in the house. He woke to the sound of screaming. And and two of her children, that's my cousin, uh, they beaten repeatedly, and two of them become handicapped. His aunt was beaten to death. His cousins, so badly they were handicapped. Feng Chung Yi's story is not unusual. Teenage Xi Jinping's life was similar. After his father was purged, the family was under attack. Xi was occasionally kidnapped and put in jail. His father was in prison. His mother was repeatedly humiliated in struggle sessions. Both of Xi Jinping's parents were beaten regularly. The children were also tormented relentlessly. Xi Jinping's sister died. Reports said she was persecuted to death, generally thought to be a euphemism for suicide. Xi Jinping went to one struggle session with his mother, Qi Xin, where Xi was the subject of the crowd's anger. Qi Xin did attend one struggle session where Xi Jinping was criticised, and when the slogan down with Xi Jinping was shouted... So the, so the people were the people at the struggle session were shouting down with Xi Jinping, the the, you know, teenage boy. Right, and uh, uh, Xi Jinping's mother was allegedly a participant in that shouting. And a night around that time, Xi Jinping left his confinement at the party school uh, when a guard was distracted and went home and told his mother that he was hungry. Uh, but his mother didn't give him food uh, and in fact reported him uh, although, interestingly, according to this friend of the family who tells this story, uh, Xi Jinping understood his mother's behavior, uh, noting that if she was caught, she would be arrested, uh, and a brother and sister would have no one to take care of them. He cried and left hungry. He was arrested the next day and sent to a prison camp. This is the boy who found himself boarding that train in Beijing, being sent to the countryside. The boy who said, If I did not go, I don't even know if I would live or die here. This was the childhood he was happy to leave behind when he and millions of other rich city kids were sent to the countryside by Mao to be re-educated by peasants. Xi's train journey ended in northern Shanxi province. Northern Shanxi, which is where Xi Jinping went, was really, 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 really a difficult place to live. So, for example... More than 70 young people who were sent to Northern Shanxi died. Xi initially hated it. He escaped back to Beijing at one point, but after being reported to authorities by his mother, again, ended up living in a cave house. A little home carved into a cliff face. I mean, when you say caves, they're actually quite nice caves. 
Louisa Lim teaches journalism at the University of Melbourne, but in 2012 she was a correspondent in China for NPR and visited Xi's cave house. They're dug into the hillside and, you know, they have windows and doors and, you know, caves are actually quite nice to live in because they're warm in the winter and cool in the summer. From here, Xi Jinping himself takes up the story. The first challenge was the fleas. I couldn't bear the fleas when I arrived. Villagers sat on my bed when they visited. I felt uncomfortable. How could they sit on my bed? Do they carry lice? Over the years, I went from afraid of them sitting on my bed to inviting them to share the cave house with me. Aside from fleas, C said that food could be hard to come by. We once didn't have meat to eat for several months. Once I saw meat the next time, my classmate and I just cut it off and ate it raw. Pickles were my favorite food. Even today, I still miss the pickles there. The story of his time in the cave house is the core of the Xi Jinping myth. Xi says his time there changed him. He talks about how witnessing this abject poverty helped him appreciate the need for the party uh, to address those extraordinary challenges. Uh, And then, of course, he talks about how tough it made him. Xi knows that this part of his story makes him seem like a man of the people. His suffering is important to his image. After all, nobody is going to be inspired by a guy who just inherited a top party job from his father. While Xi Jinping was in the countryside, he wasn't the only thing that was changing. China was too. In 1971, the world knew that something was up with Mao. An article in a Sydney newspaper yesterday suggested that the Chinese leader, Chairman Mao Zedong, may be dead. Unable to speak at times and vague at others, his wife and three deputies started running the country for him. While they did continue the horrors of the Cultural Revolution, they also welcomed the West's decision to build relations with China for the first time since the beginning of Mao's reign. I think there will be a very great improvement in relations between China and Australia as a result of this visit. Then in 1976, everything changed. And I've just had a news flash handed to me from the ABC newsroom, and it's news that will make headlines in every newspaper around the world. Radio Peking has just announced the death of the Chinese leader, Mao Zedong. Finally, Mao was dead. The country was changing. The Xi family were reunited. Jinping returned from the countryside, more devoted to the Chinese Communist Party than when he left. His father returned to the top ranks of the Chinese government. Australia and China now had diplomatic relations, allowing people to travel each way more easily. And it meant Australians with an interest in China had an opportunity to see it up close. The rain in Spain falls mainly in the ditch. Ho no bronco. This is former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Nihal. Kevin Rudd and Xi Jinping are pretty close in age, but experienced the 50s, 60s and 70s extremely differently. Xi Jinping had spent being threatened constantly with death, beaten in the street, going to bed hungry and screamed at in struggle sessions. 
Kevin Rudd grew up a world away from this, on a farm near the Sunshine Coast of Queensland. What got you interested in China as a subject to begin with, as a student? Well, as a kid growing up in rural Queensland, basically a profound disinterest in a career in animal husbandry. My father was a farmer, and so it was quite clear that the family expectations was that I would go into either of two career paths, beef or dairy. It sort of began there in terms of what I didn't want to do. Then my mother started feeding me books as a kid on China and architecture and Chinese architecture. And and so as a kid, literally growing up in a small town, I developed this sort of childhood fascination for this place called China. Kevin Rudd studied Chinese language and history at university and joined the Department of Foreign Affairs. And as one of their better Chinese linguists, they then sent me on a posting to Sweden. And once I'd picked up enough Swedish to imitate the Swedish chef quite effectively in slightly inebriated dinner parties, they then cross-posted me to Beijing. In his work as an embassy official, he met an up-and-coming politician, the vice mayor of the city of Xiamen, Xi Jinping, and the two bonded over... Hawkey. Sorry, Prime Minister Hawke. ..who was prone to causing problems for his Chinese translators by using phrases like... Well, we're not going to play silly buggers with you on this. Which, of course, the Chinese interpreter rendered as we should not engage in games of happy homosexuals. Xi and Rudd did not meet again for 26 years. Their second meeting was under very different circumstances and was memorable for Kevin Rudd. And I remember sitting with him in front of the fire at the lodge because it was June. It was 2010. The depths of a Canberra winter. Xi had worked his way through the political ranks, from mayor to governor to the top committee of the Communist Party, the Politburo. He was vice president and was yet to rise to the top job. He had a profound sense of the history of his own country, a deep knowledge of the history of the, his own party, as you would expect, and therefore in my early judgment of him, saw himself very much as, quote, the man of destiny. That is, someone who could reshape China's future. Kevin Rudd had done well in his career too. He was now Prime Minister of Australia. I think altogether we had four or five sets of meetings because I knew that he was going to be president soon. As the two men sat talking, warming themselves by the fire, Whispered conversations were taking place behind closed doors in Parliament House. They began to discuss the possibility of a future after Kevin Rudd. Numbers were being counted. They said that they did not believe that Kevin Rudd could win the next election and that Julia Gillard could. While Tsi's star was on the rise, Rudd would lose his job as Prime Minister within days. By the way, this was on the eve of the coup against me within the Labour Party by the factions. I should have been attending more to the factions of the Australian Labour Party than the factions of the Chinese Communist Party at the time. But that's another story. Xi Jinping returned to Beijing and his job as vice president, the second most powerful man in China. He left a political bloodbath behind him in Canberra, but little did he know he was heading for something similar just a few years later. In 2012, Xi Jinping was on the precipice of being the next paramount leader of China. There was just one potential challenger in his way. Bo Xilai. He was the top official in the city of Chongqing and had a very similar background to Xi. They were of a similar age. Their fathers were both famous revolutionaries. Their families had both struggled in the Cultural Revolution. 
They had both divorced and remarried famous women. But personality-wise, they couldn't have been more different. Chinese journalists say Bo Zhilai has something approaching pop star status at home, and he oozes charm. And that was before he kicked off his most famous project, the Singing Red campaign. They were mass rallies where people came together to sing revolutionary songs about Mao. Bo Zhilai's profile was skyrocketing just as Xi Jinping was making his final push to the top job in 2012. Until suddenly, something happened that destroyed Bo Lai's chances of a shot at the leadership. Actually, it destroyed his chances of a shot at anything at all. For a while, Bo Lai was flying very, very high, and then, you know, he fell very, very fast. Louisa Lim was working as a journalist for NPR in China at the time. <sighs> I mean, it was such a saga, day after day of just the most extraordinary, jaw-dropping revelations that, you know, as a reporter reporting from Beijing at the time, it was often very hard to make head or tail of what was actually going on. Borsi Lai became wrapped up in a murder mystery. A young man named Neil Haywood, a British man who'd acted as a tutor for Borsilai's son and had been like a ward for him. He was found dead at a hotel in Chongqing, the lucky hotel. What happened next was complete pandemonium. After putting Neil Hayward's death down to alcohol poisoning, the local chief of police, who was very close to Borsilai, showed up at the US consulate. He had a, a record of corruption, of uh, thuggishness, brutality. He was an enforcer for Bo Zhilai. Hillary Clinton was the US Secretary of State at the time. They may have had a falling out, and now he was trying to somehow get his way uh, to a place of safety. In the consulate, the police chief accused Bo Zhilai's wife of masterminding the poisoning of Neil Haywood. He kept saying he wanted to get the truth to Beijing. He wanted the government in Beijing to know what was happening. So we said, we can arrange that. The US conveyed the police chief's allegation to Beijing, but refused to offer him asylum. Borsi Lai and his wife were arrested, but it still got stranger. It was just jaw-dropping. Um, you know, there was sort of scandal after scandal that emerged. Borsi Lai said that that police chief had had an affair with his wife. Borsi Lai and his wife ended up going to jail for life. His wife for the murder, and Bor for spectacular levels of bribery and corruption. Yeah, I mean, it was this extraordinary spectacle. I mean, the amount of money, the type of corruption, all of that was extraordinary. I mean, that's not to say that he wasn't corrupt, but corruption allegations are an extremely useful sort of political tool in China and are often used to bring down other people. So, that happened. Xi's road to becoming China's paramount leader was now completely clear. There were no other challenges. And yet, there was one more surprise in store. So where is Xi Jinping? Xi Jinping disappeared. Nobody could tell what had happened to him. Censors blocked discussion about it on Chinese social media after people started speculating. The rumour mill has been swirling like crazy about Xi Jinping. He's had an accident, a heart attack, 
even a potential assassination attempt. The historians will tell us one day what actually happened in 2012, but Xi Jinping, I think, worked out that there were people who were prepared to do him in uh, for the leadership. Now, we don't have a real handle on the critical developments of that year yet, um, but it's fascinating. No sign of him or any mention of him at all in Chinese media for two whole weeks. You know, eventually he surfaced again and no one really knew what had happened at that time. What do we think that was about? You know, to, you know, nearly 10 years on, what did we think happened there? I literally have no idea, do you? <laughs> I don't. It's kind of wild that we don't know what that was about. Just after re-emerging, the party appointed Xi Jinping General Secretary of the Communist Party and President of China. If you're going to be honest, the Chinese leadership is a black box. Very few people know what kind of machinations go on inside the upper echelons of, of the Communist Party. And that mysterious black box hid what kind of leader Xi Jinping would become. The fact that almost no one predicted that he would be this sort of ethno-nationalist or techno-nationalist authoritarian leader, that just shows us how little um, oversight we have on China's leadership and, it, and its, its workings. The boy whose family was almost destroyed by Mao's policies did not turn away from Mao's legacy, but adopted parts of it. He abolished term limits, allowing him to remain leader for life. He centralised power around himself instead of around a committee, which is how things had been run since Mao's death. He certainly set himself up as the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao. But I think what's different is the external environment has changed. You know, China's just so much more powerful on the international stage than it was in the Mao years he has the ability on the international stage to use his influence in ways that Mao, you know, could only dream of. And Xi Jinping can justify throwing his weight around internationally, thanks to his popularity at home, and for that matter, abroad. Helen Sham Ho is a former New South Wales MP, born in Hong Kong, who has lived in Australia for 60 years. The population in China, over 90% of people actually support President Xi. What is your view of him as a leader of China? Oh, he's a good leader for China, definitely. Without him, it won't be so uh, so progressive. And it takes a more authoritarian government to do that. President Xi is all powerful. Whatever he say is done. Whatever he says is done. It increasingly looks like that is true. And recently, what he has said is that it's time to teach Australia a lesson. I'm sure there are many reasons why Australia has been at the receiving end of China's anger. You don't have to look hard to find those reasons. In fact, in November, as trade sanctions were beginning, Australia was sent an itemised list of 14 things we had done wrong, including blocking Chinese companies from operating here, interfering in their internal affairs, criticising their handling of COVID-19 in the early stages and even just saying nasty things about the Chinese Communist Party. But we're not the only country who has done those things. And because of that, pretty much everyone I've spoken to has said the same thing. It's not actually all about us. 
the idea that a middle power like Australia could, from their perspective, thumb their nose at Beijing, they saw as potentially difficult for China's other relationships around the world. And so the Chinese aphorism of Sha Yijing Bei, kill one to warn a hundred, automatically kicks in. Kill one to warn a hundred. Kill a chicken to scare the monkeys. Punish Australia to send out a warning to the rest of the world. So, this is what we'll be diving into this season on China, if you're listening. The warnings China has sent Australia, and what happens if we don't listen. China, if you're listening, is written by me, Matt Bevan. It's produced by Iris Zhao, Will Ockenden and Amelia Tan. Our series producer is Yasmin Parry. Louisa Lim's podcast is The Little Red Podcast. Her book is The People's Republic of Amnesia. If you want more analysis of the latest China news, check out the ABC's new weekly TV program, China Tonight, with Stan Grant. You can find it on iView. Next. I was playing tennis. It was a balmy Saturday afternoon. In 1989, the day before one of the most infamous events of the 20th century, Rose Tang saw the tanks rolling in. I took a black jacket and I changed into black jeans and I took a dagger. She rode her bike into the centre of Beijing to Tiananmen Square. We did not realise they were out to kill us. Hundreds, if not thousands, of her fellow protesters would be killed by their own army. But days later, a silence descended across the country and the event would never be publicly discussed again. The Chinese government engaged in one of the most successful cover-ups in global history, and they learned a lesson, one they're now applying to millions of Uyghur Muslims in China's far west. People start disappearing, and people uh, are locked up for no reason. One person tried to run away, and he was sentenced to five years in jail. There was Chinese officials literally living in their houses to monitor their activity and report their activities. That's next on China if you're listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.